Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Fine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. What's a hipster, Tap Lines listener? As Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart once said, you kind of know it when you see it, and Around the turn of the 21st century, it was a pretty good bet you were looking at a hipster if you saw, I don't know, American Spirit cigarettes, handlebar mustaches, ironic knuckle tattoos, double-decker bikes. I mean, the list of aesthetic signifiers goes on and on, honestly. As Dick Cantwell, the co-founder of Elysian Brewing Company, described to us in a recent Taplines episode, by midway through the 2010s, craft beer itself had become a harbinger of hipsterism, to its detriment. By then, the term had all but lost its meaning. By now, when we're recording this in 2023, it most certainly has. But in the early aughts, the hipster was still coming into his own in soon-to-be hotbeds of cultural reproduction and breakneck gentrification like Brooklyn, New York, Austin, Texas, and Portland, Oregon. And he, or she, or they, this phenomenon transcended gender, wasn't drinking craft beer. He was drinking Paps Blue Ribbon. How and why that came to be is the subject of hundreds of thousands of words written and dozens upon dozens upon dozens of marketing case studies and PowerPoint decks. And we're going to get into all that and more in just a moment, listener. But what you need to understand is that PBR wasn't always destined to represent an entire American subculture. In fact, as Y2K approached, it seemed destined for the scrap heap along with its namesake firm. After decamping the historic brewing metropolis of Milwaukee for San Antonio five years prior, Pabst Brewing Company was in disarray. Its ownership structure was Byzantine, its portfolio was outdated, and PBR volumes were hitting historic lows. When Neil Stewart joined the company in the year 2000, it was being run by a charitable foundation that was legally obligated to attempt to sell it every five years. Nobody was buying Pabst the company, but... In one city in the Pacific Northwest, people had mysteriously bucked recent trends and begun buying Pabst the beer, and a lot of it. Neil investigated, and what he saw was the beginning of a trend that would change the trajectory of PBR, of Pabst Brewing Company, of the American brewing industry, hell, of consumer packaged goods marketing in the United States writ large. Diehard Taplines listeners already know what came next thanks to our earlier episode with Steve Sticks Nilsson, who worked on the Blue Ribbon brand in the latter aughts and into the 2010s. But today we kick off part one of a Taplines two-parter with Neil Stewart himself that'll function sort of like a prequel to that episode. In this episode, we'll go deep into PBR's unlikely inimitable rise in the early aughts, not just as a value-priced beer, but as the red, white, and blue face of an entire moment in the American zeitgeist. It's Neil Stewart, it's Paps Blue Ribbon, it's how an emerging subculture found its liquid avatar, and it's all right here right now on Vine Pairs Tablots. Neil Stewart, welcome to Taplines on the Vibe Pair Podcast Network. We are so glad to have you, my friend. Very good to be here. Um, I'm happy to share some stories of my past career in the beer industry. Yes, yes. And we will get right into those stories. But before we do, Neil, where are you joining us from today? I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, I'm currently not working in the beer industry. Um, I work for a company called Dano's Seasoning. 
Um, so people might know us from our founder, a guy named Dan Oliver, who started a seasoning brand and blew up on TikTok. And now we're a nationwide brand and trying to disrupt the seasoning industry. Love that, man. Man, if you're a beer marketer and you're blowing up on TikTok, that is potentially bad news uh, from a regulatory standpoint. Luckily, no such regulatory hurdles exist for uh, cooking seasoning. So you're in the clear there. You're a little bit different oh, than, your, than your former business. It's, uh, you know, I do have to think about uh, compliance with the FDA every once in a while, but comparatively versus the Alcabev industry, this is a breeze. Yeah, sl- slightly less regulated, right on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Neil, we, we got you on today uh, because we are going to be looking back in history. We're going to scroll the Taplines time machine back about 20 years, maybe 25-ish. Uh, we're going to go right to the turn of the century, right? You know, uh, uh, Y2K is in the offing. Um, we, gosh, who's president, I guess Bush, Bush has just become president, uh, on the, on the back of the, uh, the hanging chads. Um, and we're, we're going back because we want to talk about a brand that you were intimately involved with during your time in the beer industry, uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon, of course, owned by the Pabst Brewing Corporation. And in 2000, uh, ish, right around this, this period that we're looking at right now, Neil, uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon wasn't wasn't doing all so hot. Tell me a little bit about when you first were joining up at Pabst Brewing Company, what you were walking in on. Yeah, you know, it was doing terrible. I mean, the entire uh, company was was in a free fall. Uh, we had just entered into a contract brewing agreement with then Miller Brewing Company. We still had sure. two breweries in existence, uh, one in San Antonio, which is where I was based, and then one in uh, Lehigh, Pennsylvania, um, I'm, not, I'm not even sure who owns that brewery now. Is that Sam Adams that owns that? Um, you could, you, your guess yeah. is good. My, Sam Adams, Boston Beer Company is a good guess. Yeah, that's yeah, a good guess. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, I joined the company in August of 2000. I'm actually from St. Louis originally, and okay. I worked on the agency side for the big brewery there and got just a little bit of beer experience. And I wanted to leave St. Louis. I moved to Austin, Texas on a whim one day. And uh, ended up finding a job in San Antonio, Texas, in the beer industry and applied for it and was lucky enough to get it and joined the company as a divisional marketing manager in August of 2000. In terms of the company performance at that time, you know, if uh, if the company was declining by single digits, that was worthy of a celebration. The company had been in decline for quite some time. Oh, boy. So it was owned by a charitable trust. Are you familiar with any of that storyline? Tell us a little bit about it. I've done a little bit of research on this, but I think our listeners would, would benefit from understanding the, the dire straits that Pabst Brewing Company was in and the structure by which sort of it was being governed at that time. Yeah. So uh, it was owned by a charitable trust. And uh, the, the board of directors was based in Northern California. Uh, so the company was previously owned by a guy named Paul Kalmanovitz, who was an immigrant to the United States. And and he had made his fortune primarily in real estate. And then at one point bought Pabst Brewing Company. And then some at some point in like the mid to late 90s, Pabst bought the Stroh Brewing Company, which was kind of the small fish buying the big fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but somehow uh, they, they worked that out. Well, Mr. Kalmanovitz passed away. He had no one to leave the brewery to. Um, the folklore was that actually in his will, he left the brewery to his pets. He and his wife had an assortment of pets and they literally inherited the company. Um, and so because <laughs> pets can't own a company, uh, it went into a charitable trust. And that charitable trust 
the beneficiary of it was a hospital in Northern California, which had prolonged the life of Paul Kalmanovitz's wife at one point in time. She was diagnosed with some sort of uh, fatal Chronic disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, some doctors prolonged her life and then he was like forever indebted to them. And so all of the profits of the Paps Brewing Company at that time, and the company was still making money. It just yeah. was in decline. Um, but all of the profits of the company were pushed to this charitable trust. And people often asked us like, why aren't you promoting this? Like, this is amazing. You know, this is what is, this is like a nonprofit company. Well, it wasn't a nonprofit company. It was a charitable trust. And according to federal law, uh, a charitable trust cannot own a for-profit company that of that size. So the company every five years had to make, per federal regulations, had to make a reasonable attempt to sell itself. <laughs> So in 2000, and that every five years was 2000, yeah, 2005, yeah. 2010. So they tried to sell it in 2000, didn't happen. I started shortly thereafter. The guy who was CEO was a guy named Bill Bidding, who was the lawyer for Paul Kalmanovitz. And when he failed in being able to sell the company, because they didn't have to take just any old offer. The, the government would kind of step in and say, all right, that's a fair offer and that's not a fair right, offer. Right, right. Okay. So he he failed in that attempt. He resigned. <laughs> we, we, we were in terrible financial condition because we had, I think literally at that time, we had 2,000 distributors across the country because it was all of these non-consolidated networks. Right. You know, there was the... Heilman, the Paps Network. Miller, and then everybody else. Yeah, yeah right. Yep, yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. And that was back in the age where, you know, there's not nearly the distributor consolidation that there is today. So we had 2,000 distributors across the country. Many of them were not paying their bills, but we were still shipping them beer um, <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. And so uh, when that guy, Bill Bidding, quit, um, they hired this kind of like crisis emergency company uh, that could come in and manage it. Um, I want to say the name of the company was called Crossroads. Okay. And this guy kind of came in and like officed out of San Antonio and like laid the smackdown on all these distributors and said, either you pay us right now or we are suing you. Well, people started to pay. So that was good. So the financials of the company started to kind of get fixed. Um, <laughs> they were only in that for a while, but then they finally did hire a new CEO, a guy named uh, Brian Kovalchuk who probably joined the company, I want to say in 2002. And then his, and this is just what I gathered from working there during this time, but yeah. you know, his mission was to sell the company for a fair price. Sure. And so he worked through, uh, through 2005. Um, he lived in Minneapolis, commuted down to San Antonio every week, you know, had this like crazy schedule. Just a terrible life, by the way. That's just an yeah. awful way to live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Flying Northwest Airlines from Minneapolis to San Antonio every oh, Sunday man. night probably wasn't great. <laughs> um, so yeah, he he was unable to sell the company, and you know, and we had you know investment bankers helping us. I think we had hired Merrill Lynch at that time. Sure. And so when he didn't sell the company, he was like, "All right, I'm out." New CEO came in, a guy named Kevin Kotecki. And by that time, I was like, all right, this is crazy. I'm going to go work for another brewery. Okay. <laughs> We've got a lot to unpack here. I don't yeah, know. a lot, a Put lot. more time on the clock. First of all, I want to hear about this uh, corporation run by pets. This sounds like a Matt Damon <laughs> follow-up to We Bought a Zoo. Like, there was a time when, I mean, in a, in a trivial and glib sense, but also, I suppose, in a technical sense, if that were true, and I know that's folklore, we're not we're not sure yeah. whether or not that's true. If it were true, 
people were were working for pets. They were working for animals. Like, the, <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so that's very very concerning. And you sort of get this. I, I mean, this has like a circus element to it, dude. We're like yeah. the 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 hospital in Northern California. They're the beneficiary. The federal government wants to see that they make an attempt at Paps makes an attempt every five years to sell, but no one will buy. So all these leaders come through, they give it their old college try, and then they get the hell out of there. Then the yep. guy from Crossroads, this company that sounds like a rehab facility, uh, <laughs> is coming in, is coming in and threatening to sue like Joe Schmo, Paps, you know, distributor who owns like, you know, Mississippi yeah. territory or wherever he is. Yeah. He's like, hey. You got 15 unpaid invoices here. You better start remitting. Yeah. Man, yeah. okay. So you well, so, walked here, here's, into a mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, here's an interesting point. I mean, we had all those delinquent uh, distributors in who arrears. hadn't paid yeah, in like yeah, yeah. hundreds of days, but we were in this contract brewing agreement. Yeah. <laughs> but our net with Miller Brewing Company on the contract brewing was 10 days. What? Yeah. Best case scenario, they're, they're paying on net 30. And then we're paying on net 10. So just like add up all the interest 20 days at a time. Right. And that's probably millions of dollars a year. On its own. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah anyway, anyone yeah. who's had any uh, uh, experience managing cash flow and is listening to this just had a heart attack when you heard yeah. them say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I also think it's worth uh, talking about Paul Kalmanovitz's strategy. So Tell before me. he passed away, yeah, yeah. which you know was before I was with the company, but I mean, think about it from his perspective. He was an aging man. Uh, by that time, he was a widower, and sure. he, you know he knew he was going to die. He knew he had no one to give the brewery to, so he went into like when strategists talk about a milk strategy. This was a milk strategy. He literally said, "Look, I'm going to like minimize our production." I'm going to not spend any money on the brands. These brands will, you know, sub-premium pricing. We're still going to sell. We're still going to make money, but I'm not going to invest in them at all because I'm at the end of my life. And that's a key point because all of these brands within the PAPS portfolio suffered, you know, they and, and had no marketing support behind them. It was yeah. just kind of like live on the fringe. So then when he passed away and it goes to the charitable trust, Obviously, that that strategy changes a little bit. It's all about building up valuation so that you can maximize your return on that sale that is going to happen at some point. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a good way to get into sort of when we talk about sort of where the company is, it's at, you know, this sort of dire moment, this dire inflection point. It's it's leaderless, it's rudderless, but the brands themselves despite the lack of investment in it that Kalmanovitz, you know, sort of had decided to do is he's going to maybe land the plane or like let it slowly sort of drift into the ocean, whatever the metaphor is there. Um, the brands, even despite that, like you're talking about brands that had an enormous amount of, you know, existing established equity, right? Like, so yeah. PBR of yeah. course is the one we're here to talk about today, but mm -hmm. this was a massive portfolio of, even at the time, I mean, now we think of them as retro, but I mean, 20 years ago, they were more just, they were these regional brands that, that were beloved in, in the Northwest or in the lower Midwest yeah. or whatever. I mean, like Grain Belt, Rainier, Olympia, Brown Derby, whatever. I, I mean, you could probably rattle off more than I could, but these brands had some equity, right? Even though they weren't being invested in. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, uh, the brands that I specifically worked on and at one point in time during my, my, you know, five or six years at Pabst. I worked on all of them. Mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, Lone Star, Pearl, uh, Old Pearl. Style. 
Special yeah. Export, Rainier, Lucky, uh, you know, Schlitz, uh, sure. Natty Bow, Colt 45. I mean, you know, uh, we used to joke that, you know, Pabst was the Anheuser-Busch of malt liquor. So, you know, they owned Colt 45, Schlitz malt liquor, St. <laughs> Ides, you know. So, like, during the malt liquor heyday, like, that, that for- portfolio was on fire. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, we had several brands, uh, you know, Haffenreffer. Narragansett, which obviously was was sold, I actually worked with uh, Mark Hellendrung on on that deal when he when he bought that from Pabst. Mm. Um, but yeah, there were several brands in the portfolio that were just in mothballs. Um, wow! I actually cut a deal at one point in time that if we, because I was the PBR brand manager and our CEO at that time, Brian Kovalchuk, uh, I said, hey, if we grow PBR by whatever percent, I think it was like ten percent in a year, that he was going to give me the rights to Falstaff beer. And we did do that. We did no, grow St. by Louis, whatever. The, the St. Louis brand, old St. Yeah, Louis yeah, brand. Yeah, yeah, Because I'm from St. Louis. And yeah, I was like, course, yeah. I want the rights to that brand. And uh, I came through on my end of the bargain. He didn't give me the brand. No. <laughs> All right. That's no good. We'll have to put that yeah. in the tap lines, uh, Grudge Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, come do it. All right. So you, so you come in in 2000. You know, the company is in disarray. The brands, though, they haven't been invested in. We do still you know, drinkers are still resonating to some extent with these brands. They still have this iconic, you know, sort of uh, place in their respective communities. This is right around the time, correct me if I'm wrong, but right around, you know, the turn of the century is when there's this sort of early phenomenon that people begin to track. If, if they're savvy local columnists at the newspaper or they're, you know, sort of promoters at the local rock club or People who are either on the fringes or who pay attention to the fringes start to see Pabst Blue Ribbon, for lack of a better term, like kind of where it wasn't supposed to be, where you would be like, what are are people doing with this beer? Tell me, you coming in, Neil, what was your perception of PBR around that time? Were you seeing this stuff? Was there momentum in the air that you were aware of at that time? Absolutely not. Mm. (laughs) No, I mean, uh, I... (laughs) I think your memory might be a little bit clouded because like there, there, it did seem to like happen all at once. Yeah. But you know, when I arrived there in 2000, I mean, it, so I'm pre it, I'm before if, it then it, it had yet to rise really. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha, I mean, yeah. really it started, well, it, I think it bottomed out in 2001. Okay. So it had 20, 23 years of decline. Wow. So I want to say, uh, in, so in 1978, was it's like peak. Yeah, it's heyday, it right? Late 70s, yep. Yeah. Do you want to take a guess on the barrelage in 1978 oh, for I don't, PBR? I, I want to guess somewhere around, I looked at this up, but I, I know it from like 75 or so. I think like uh, 18 million-ish. Pretty close. I'm going to say it's yeah. about 23 million. Okay, yeah. all right. So in That's the neighborhood. That's a good guess. Yeah. Yeah. So about 23 million barrels. I used to have this chart in my decks and I would show like, you know, the 23 years of decline because part of the the intrigue of the story was that it had so much decline. It bottomed out. You want to take a guess at what it bottomed out as? Oh, I know af- that number by heart. <laughs> I'm afraid to, I'm afraid to ask. Okay. So you think it went from 23 yeah. million in 1978, uh, lowest it goes, I'm going to say 14 million. Oh no. 872,000. Oh my God. Under all million barrels. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize it got that low at all. I thought it lost yeah. like half of its volume or so. Holy no. smokes, man. Yeah. Lost ninety percent of its volume. Oh, over my that time frame. God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So to some people, this is a dead brand walking. Why? Yeah. I mean, obviously it's your job, so that's the why. But 
what do you do? Your bottom's out in 2001. Where's your head at? You're one year into this job. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, I, I was working on Lone Star and, and PBR at that time. Uh, so yeah, it bottomed out, but there was like this glimmer of hope. And by the way, it was also like the third largest brand in the portfolio. Old Milwaukee was number one. Mm. Colt 45 was number two. Colt 40, I'm sorry, Old Milwaukee was still back then probably like 2.5, 3 million barrels. It was still a pretty viable brand. Wow, okay. Uh, Colt, Colt was probably around 2 million barrels. So PBR bottoms out at 872, but it's the namesake of the company. So there's a little bit of pride around you gotta that. You got to defend it. Yep, yep, yeah. Yep, yep. And it was national. So, you know, aside from Colt and uh, Old Milwaukee, this was the other national brand. Other Everything else is kind of regional. Um, so, yeah, but then there's this glimmer of hope. And uh, it's in Portland, Oregon. And like all of a sudden, the numbers in Portland, Oregon are like through the roof. The rest of the country is like down 20%, but Portland, Oregon is up like 90%. Whoa. And it's like, what's going on in Portland, Oregon? So you got on a plane, I assume. You got to get out there and see what's going on. (laughs) I did. Yeah. My boss sent me out there uh, and he was like, you're the young, we heard, you know, that, hey, it's these you know, these young adult consumers that are picking up PBR, you know, the, the word hipster didn't even exist back That's then. That's what I was going to ask. Was that even a thing yeah. just yet? No, that no, milieu had no, yet really. to really hit. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was young back then. And, you know, they said, well, Neil, you're young. Go figure this out. <laughs> I dug into this story and, you know, I've actually pieced this story together more so even after I left the company. So here, here's number one thing that happened. There was like our, our sales rep out in, in Oregon uh, when PBR started to really catch on, he he did the right thing, which was he gave every bar that brought PBR in, he gave them that classic Pabst Neon, mm-hmm. all right? And uh, and he got like prime uh, locations for it. But the funny thing is, is that he overspent his budget by like five times because he like <laughs> made some sort of mathematical error. <laughs> but it was the best investment that the company ever made yeah, yeah. was him blowing his budget on, on Neons. So- <laughs> That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is it, it literally started at a place in Southeast Portland called the Lutz Tavern. Okay. And the Lutz Tavern was near Reed College, which was is a, you know, a liberal arts college. Sure, small you know, little school. Full, yeah, yeah. Yeah, full of hipsters, by the way. And the Lutz Tavern was the dive bar that was like, you know, less than a mile from campus. And what I, this, this is the really interesting thing. This is what I was able to piece together after I left. So the Lutz Tavern for many years had carried Blitz beer for a dollar a can. Blitz Weinhardt. Blitz Weinhardt. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Blitz, Blitz yeah. Weinhardt. So, but it was Blitz beer, not okay. Henry Weinhardt. Blitz beer. They they sold dollar cans of Blitz beer for forever. When Pabst and Miller didn't join up, but when they when they um, completed the agreement for Miller to start contract brewing for Pabst, right? Pabst had to pay them a certain amount of money. I don't know how much. They had to pay them a certain amount of money just to kind of get up and running. It wasn't just like, hey, start uh, brewing our beer. We'll pay you when we ship it. It was like there was was a a fee to that. Pabst had trouble pulling together whatever that fee was. So Pabst gave Miller Brewing Company some brands. They gave them Mickey's. They gave them the Blitz Weinhardt portfolio. And there was one other one that I'm not recalling right now. So when Miller received the Blitz Weinhardt portfolio, they were like, what are we going to do with these brands? Sure, we'll do something with Henry Weinhardt's, but we're going to kill Blitz beer. That has no purpose in our portfolio. So Miller killed Blitz beer, 
when when the Lutz Tavern could no longer get Blitz beer, what did they bring in? PBR. PBR. That became their new dollar can. Whoa. From Mount Hood Distributing. All right. And um, and that is where the entire PBR trend started at the Lutz Tavern, which then it jumped down to the uh, account down the street, a place called the Delta Cafe, which was this like kind of like hipster Southern comfort food place that started selling PBR in 40 ounces and champagne buckets because it was ironic. Yeah. But everything started at the Lutz Tavern because they couldn't get Blitz and it's because Miller killed Blitz when they received it from Pabst. There's such an incredible, <laughs> that's like an incredible symmetry there. Yeah. The contract brewing arrangement goes through. Miller gets Blitz. Miller says, we don't want Blitz. Forget about it. This one bar in Portland yeah. had been making it, you know, it's it, that that's what the stool was standing on was Blitz wine or Blitz sales. And yeah. so we're like, well, let's just slide this other beer in there. Yeah. What do you want? Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I l- later met the guy who was on that route. And he was telling me about it. He was like, literally, they were just like, well, what can we get for a dollar? And he's like, I don't know, PBR? <laughs> and they're like, sure, PBR, that sounds good. And that became like the one of the top accounts in Portland, Oregon. And then that's where it spread. I mean, like it was all the hipsters in Southeast Portland, trendy neighborhood, and then the guy overspending on the neons. And then, yeah, and then that's where I came in where they were like, Neil, you're the young guy. You're like, go figure this out. So I fly up to Portland. I, you know, ride around the the market with our sales rep. He's telling me what's going on. He takes me to the Lutz Tavern. He takes me to the Delta Cafe. He takes me to a place uh, over on the other side of the river. I can't think of the name of the account. It's closed now. But it was a bike messenger bar. Okay. And uh, all the bike messengers were like big PBR supporters. You know, I start hanging out with these bike messengers. I could kind of play the, the part back then. You know, I'm meeting guys that like have full like PBR tattoos on their back. You know, they're telling me these passionate wow, even stories. Back then. Yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah, even back then. Yeah. And you know, most of them were from the Midwest. They were transplants to Portland because you know who wants to live in you know Des Moines, Iowa, all their life. Sure, sure. So they were from kind of where PBR was strong, and um, you know they would tell me these passionate stories about why they supported PBR, and it was all because. PBR had not been marketing to them and it was something that they adopted and that they made into their own. Yeah. And then the other part of it was it was a tribute to their grandfather. You know, their dad drank mainstream light beer and you know, like they didn't want to be like their dad. They want to be like their grandfather who used to throw back PBRs. Mm, interesting. All right. There's two things going on there. First of all, I love this idea of like you going around like the fucking mentalist of the beer industry and like doing <laughs> doing like forensic reporting on like like where patient zero was on the PBR phenomenon, <laughs> like going and retracing. Also hilarious that they were like, uh, I don't know, Neil, you're like the young dude, like go figure this out. <laughs> like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. 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 It was like that's that's what passed for like corporate espionage at this charitable trust uh uh yeah. semi brewery. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so so you've you've sort of tracked it down. You you've started to engage with consumers in the market. You know you're out in the trade, whatever. And you hear these two things that are, I mean, those are two major insights, right? One yeah, yeah. is it's nothing, or it, it it has nothing. It's not being marketed, so and that's why we like it. And then the other is, well, my dad drank this one thing and, and, you know, the rule of thumb listener in the beer industry is kids don't want to drink what their dads drank. But in this case, they wanted to drink 
what their grandfathers drank. There was maybe like enough of a remove. It didn't feel stodgy. It felt maybe ironic or it felt, you know, it had, it had come back around. So now it was retro and cool and whatever. What do you do with that? Those insights from there, Neil, like you're, you're yeah. in Portland. You obviously go back to San Antonio. You've, you've seen what is at that point, right? The only glimmer of hope for this brand, but it's a really promising one. Yeah. What happens next? Yeah. I mean, at that time, it was only happening in Portland. It wasn't happening anywhere else. Um, that same trip, when I was hanging out with the bike messengers, mm. they approached me to sponsor a bike messenger race. And, you know, I, I even went to the bike messenger race. And to this day, I couldn't tell you what a bike messenger race is. <laughs> but um, they asked us to sponsor a bike messenger race. Because you were like the closest thing to like the corporate guy there. You were like, I yeah. don't know, maybe Neil has my, like, we may as well ask Neil. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd always carry around a, I, uh, I would carry around a bag of like swag. So I had like belt sure, buckles sure, and, yeah. and hats and stuff. And they really liked that. And you know, I drank several beers with them. And like over the, the, the happy hour, they built up the courage to like ask me if I would sponsor this. Okay. And I was like, okay, like how much? And they're like, they had no idea how much money what to, to ask, ask for. for. Yeah. yeah. Because like, you know, it's not like they were like a typical sponsorship salesperson that has like the platinum tier, the gold right. tier, the silver right. tier. They were just like, you know, I don't know, like 2,500. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And so uh, I go back to San Antonio <laughs> and we have this, uh, you know, like division director sales meeting yeah, yeah. where all the division directors are gathering and they're going through like their quarterly results and, you know, all, all the numbers are in the toilet you know, and uh, they're asking questions like, well, what are we going to do about this? And I raised my hand and I was like, hey, so I was in Portland and uh, I've got this opportunity to sponsor a bike messenger race. And they're like, what? What is that? I'm like, no, these guys are like really into PBR. I think we should sponsor it. And um, I kind of got laughed out of the room because like, you know, typical beer salespeople are like, hey, how's that going to help me move boxes? Right, you know, right. you going up there and like giving away a bunch of beer and, you know, you're just throwing away $2,500. Well, at that time, my boss, who was a guy named Gene Clark, who I, I think is one of the, the smartest guys in, in, the, in the beer business, he, uh, he had worked in the beer business for a long, long time. He, he did this thing where he gave everyone in the marketing department like their own kind of like personal slush fund of like $10,000. And he was like, this is your money. Like, go make something happen with this. So he talks to me after the meeting. He's like, if you want to sponsor that, you know, take it out of your fund and sponsor it. And I was like, okay. And so I did it. And I flew back up to Portland. I went to the bike messenger race and I was kind of into videography at the time. So I took my like DV camera up there and I like filmed this like documentary of, of the bike messenger race, you know, hanging out in bars, you know, guys tooling around parks, you know, on their single speed bikes and everything. Yeah. And then I come home and I like edit it on my little iMac and then I show it at like a company meeting with like, and I made it into like a music video. And then that was like the moment where people started to say, all right, there, there might be something here. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who along with the talented Shane Farrick composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire Vine Pear team and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. 
I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.